Everyone still looks uncomfortable. Perhaps they all remembered that old saying, power corrupts. Welcome to Second Officer Slog, your journey through all of the Star Trek books with me, your host, M, and regular co-host, my number one, Jackson Tyler. Hello. Not all of the Star Trek books, I would die. <laughs> Look, we're going to do this until one of us dies, so it might as well be all the Star Trek books. <laughs> Just us 60 years old, like, oh, hello, today we're going to talk about the uh, third Voyager relaunch series. God, Books. the worst part is in a world in which maybe after Discovery they just not do Star Trek again, we're just going to be playing around this fucking playground with Picard forever. <laughs> the year is 2050 and books are still being released about like I guess original series books are still being released. Yeah, it just like Star Trek books just become fucking Marvel comics where nothing ever happens. Yeah, I mean I know that things do happen. Like this, this whole podcast started because we saw that crazy thing happens. Uh, but I guess Picard still has to command the Enterprise for the fucking rest of his life. Yep. No, he's gonna live to be seven hundred. Uh, we'll we will see it out. <laughs> yep. That's us at the end of the world. Watch reading fucking Star Trek books. Uh, hello. Hi. We uh we launched the website and everything. Uh, this is the first one recorded after all that happened. Oh right, yes it is. Christ, a lot has happened yeah. since then. So if you don't, I mean, you're listening to this, whatever. You can go to abnormalmapping.com/sos. We have a website. Uh, you can see the previous episodes. We're on iTunes. We have a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com/abnormalmapping and see all of the shows we do and help support them. If you wanted to recommend books for us to read or even be on an episode yourself. Uh, you could back at appropriate amounts to get that. Uh, even if you're like, I don't read Star Trek books, but I like sci-fi. If you back enough, we will do an episode about your favorite sci-fi book. Uh, that would be a cool thing because me and Jackson actually aren't pretty, aren't that well read with sci-fi in general. Uh, it would be a nice adventure. So that's totally a thing you can do. Uh, yep. I still need to finish reading Ancillary Justice. Uh, yep. Uh, and then the two books after it. <laughs> well, yeah, I assume once I get going, I'm not going to stop because you make them sound amazing. I really like them. They're really good. The, yeah. Uh, so we're here to talk about Star Trek. We... Uh, as always, uh, cover two episodes and then a book. And then I think what we should do is we should announce what episodes we're covering, what book we're reading, and then announce next month's in case someone wants to skip around and not read, like not cover the book or anything, that stuff. Uh, Just going to give the information up front. right up top. Yes. Yeah. So Jackson, what episodes are we covering this month? Today, we are going to be covering uh, episode 18 of season six of Deep Space Nine called Inquisition which is written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle and directed by Michael Dorn. Uh, and also The Trouble with Tribbles, the 13th episode of season two of the original series, uh, written by David Gerald and directed by Joseph Pevney. Uh, they're both good episodes. They're good discussions. If you've not seen too much into DS9, then uh, avoid the Inquisition stuff and also the book. But otherwise, it's just a fun Star Trek talk. You can listen to us talk about The Tribbles. Yep. Uh, and then what book are we covering? We are covering Section 31, Abyss, which is written by uh, Jeffrey Lang and David Weddle. 
which is part of a series of books where Section 31 interact with Star Trek cast members, and they're very bad, because Section 31. The, the, Section 31 is bad. The books might be okay. We only read this one, and we'll get it. Oh, we only read this one, yes. No, I, I, that wasn't a dunk on the book. I, I don't think the book's that good, but that's not, that wasn't what that meant. Yes. Uh, next week, next month, not week, this is not a weekly podcast. Oh, God, we could not keep this up. Uh, you're doing you're you're telling the people what next yes. week is because i don't have them open <laughs> yep uh month not week jackson so what i just said fuck <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> next month we are doing a counselor troy and william t Riker romance extravaganza with the episodes haven which is tng season one episode 11 uh written by tracy tomey and uh directed by richard compton and then we are doing TNG Season 6, Episode 24, Second Chances, written by Rene Echeverria and directed by LeVar Burton. The book we are doing is one that I read in my childhood. It is Star Trek Next Generation Imzadi by Peter David. This uh, doesn't require you to know anything other than TNG, so it's like, the this is going to be the podcast to listen to if you're like, I don't know about DS9 post-relaunch things. This is the one. Because uh, we'll have everything that everybody knows. We'll be talking about very familiar characters and not going into deep lore Star Trek bullshit. So please look forward to next month's. Uh, listen to this one's if you're interested in this stuff, because uh, we're going to have a good talk about some of the peculiarities of Julian Bashir and the bullshit of Section 31 for sure. Uh, so stay tuned after the jump, and we'll get into the episodes and uh, see you on the other side. first episode is Inquisition, DS9, Season 6, Episode 18. As we said, written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, directed by Michael Dorn, this is the introduction of Section 31 into the Star Trek universe. Uh, this opens with Dr. Bashir about to go off on a conference, because uh, he's going to just be a medical doctor and do the medical doctor things. I'm pretty sure in TNG also Beverly Crusher is abducted trying to go to a medical conference. Don't go to medical conferences if you're a Star Trek doctor. It's a bad idea. One of the plot points of this episode is how Bashir was also previously abducted <laughs> while trying to go to a medical conference. This is not the first time this has happened to our boy. Oh, great. I mean, Troy was turned into a Romulan going to a medical conference once, so... <laughs> Just imagining them all sitting around a table, like sharing these stories. Like I was turned into a Romulan. Like, does anyone actually show up at the conferences, or is everyone spirited away to secret missions every time they go to a conference? So these conferences are just deserted. The one doctor who shows up who wasn't important enough to be taken. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have to imagine being in uh, Starfleet is just a very ridiculous thing. What are the, is life like for the Starfleet? Uh, Officers who are not on TV shows and have regular lives. Uh, I don't know. Hard, probably, because <laughs> all of yeah. all of everyone else just seems to go on crazy adventures, and you're just like charting a wormhole for like three years. <laughs> 
they they say that, but that they have to fill so much plot, which is <laughs> that idea is central to what happens in this episode. So what happens? Well, uh, for starters, and hilariously, Chief O'Brien dislocated his shoulder kayaking. Memory Alpha was helpfully re- reminding me that this happened two other times, once in TNG and once in DS9. Maybe Chief O'Brien should stay the fuck off the holodeck if he's going to keep injuring himself like this. I mean, that is the running gag. Yeah, no, but this, he's like in his like 40s. He's clearly not taking care of himself. He should stop kayaking. Uh, call me and don't give a fuck. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and that's like the last time he shows up in this episode, basically, until the very end. <laughs> yeah, just a walking, like, uh, what's the what, uh, Chekhov's gun, I guess. Yep. So this is post-revelation that Bashir is uh, genetically modified, right? Yeah, it has to be yes. because they talk about that one. Uh, and uh, he wakes up to go to the conference only to find himself uh, confronted by Department of Internal Affairs. I cannot speak today. The Department of Internal Affairs, which is here to investigate the idea that there is a... a I can't think of all my DS9 words. It is early in the morning. Uh, There is a Dominion spy within the DS9 uh, staff, and they think... They're going to interview everyone, but it's quickly apparent that they're looking at Bashir specifically. Yes. Which leads to the first act being very... Uh, ridiculous, like, comedy as Bashir is kind of, like, put upon by this these inconveniences. There's this great bit where he's, like, basically whistling in the lift as he walks into, like, and now you're all sent to quarters. Yep. Uh, and Sloane, uh, who's the in- internal affairs director, is like, uh, don't worry, we've already notified the medical conference that you won't be attending. And he's like, oh, how considerate of you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yep. uh, so just just good good put upon Bashir. Yeah, and then they start uh, interrogating everyone, and then like uh, they they interrogate Bashir the first time, and it's like five minutes of light questioning, and send him back to his quarters. And Bashir's like, "Oh, that was very easy." And then he gets a call from O'Brien, and O'Brien's like, "They've interrogated me for four hours, and it was mostly about you." And he's like, "Well, that's weird. They didn't ask me very many questions at all." And my favorite thing is Bashir's like general like go along to get along nature, like just immediately makes him the most susceptible to like being charmed into participating with bullshit. Yep. Uh, and it's like a thing that we'll, we'll get into, especially the book. Cause the book leans into that even more, but Bashir's like tendencies to just try to keep his head down uh, are clearly like a bad idea here where he just ends up listening to them far longer than he should before putting his foot down. It's not a good situation for Bashir. No, no it's definitely episode. not. I mean, they sent him gawk to eat for breakfast yeah which is hilarious because there's a another i don't know if it's better or if it's worse but i don't know uh, there's another version of the episode where they actually put in a cutaway shot of uh wharf receiving the scones because he's got like wharf's breakfast well i mean (laughs) and uh, there is no wharf's breakfast as we'll find out as we get deeper in this episode but yes yes it's uh well so that's the thing is that later on in this episode is revealed the whole thing is like a hologram simulation yeah um which is amazing as it's played as this huge surprise and you're meant to watch this episode thinking, oh, what's happening? But if you've watched any like amount of Star Trek before, this has happened about six times. And <laughs> so you s- instantly know. Yeah, specifically, if the episode doesn't have a B plot at all and it's just the A plot, <laughs> that means that the, probably everything's an illusion. 
Yeah. If if they don't cut away to any other part of like the ship, to any other characters like discussing the plot, it's not a real plot. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is actually a rule of Star Trek. Yeah, because they're—I mean—they're not going to make fake B plots to just like not have them not exist anymore. Though I—that would probably like if they were making it today, they 100% would have like the things that like the fandom is like, oh, maybe these characters will go in this direction, and then they do it, and then reveal the whole thing is like a fucking dream. Oh God, Star Trek being in the 90s is a fucking gift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but so as the episode goes on, we just have like increasing things, like getting worse and worse. He's like put. He's, like, walked through the promenade in irons, which is another huge sign of this isn't real. That They wouldn't actually have this be a thing that happened to Bashir. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's really uh, messed up. <laughs> uh, and then, like, like Cisco's kind of working as his counsel with, for a fantastic scene of interrogation <laughs> where he's like, did you do this? And then Cisco's like, that is a circular argument and you know it. <laughs> so the thing that's really interesting, and all this is kind of moot because like the whole thing is a simulation, but like everyone in the Department of Internal Affairs is like, oh, we all lost a bunch of people in the battles of the Dominion and everything. And like these like wounded axe to grind Starfleet officers being like the, the backbone of the Department of Internal Affairs and later Section 31 is like really interesting to me. Like as I like I wish they could interact with the real Cisco because Cisco was that person at the beginning of DS9. Like Cisco was like didn't want to talk to Picard, was ready to quit Starfleet. He just wanted to like take it to the Borg and take it to the idea that people could not be the perfect officers they need to be. Like he would have been prime candidate to be Section 31. Yeah. Uh, and it's not really touched upon, but I I wish that this episode had the scope to like d- dig into that because the one moment where the they were like leading Bashir into jail and the guard the guard is like oh I lost a bunch of people during the last battle blah 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 and uh, like I'm like oh that's just Cisco at the beginning of that show because I watched the pilot not too long ago and I remember Cisco being just the most petulant angry man and not for not for like no reason but uh, it's interesting to see how far he's come by season six. Uh, and the thing we haven't mentioned is that the core, uh, like, accusation that uh, Bashir faces isn't that he's a, a Dominion spy. It's that he's a... Yeah, I can't talk either. Yep. It's that he's a Dominion spy and doesn't know it. Like, the memories have been suppressed, so he literally doesn't believe he's a Dominion spy. So, like, the question is forced on him to, like, wait, is this a possible thing that I could just have never known about myself? Yeah, and specifically it's because his mind is so, like rigid and complex due to his like genetic modifications that would make him more susceptible to that sort of stuff which leads to like uh this moment later on in the episode where uh he gets beamed out of his like jail cell before he's about to be taken away forever to the dominion to like extract him to fucking weyoon to weyoon yeah who's then he's like hey uh you're definitely a spy you that is definitely what you are uh, and like breaks down how it supposedly happened, and it's kind of a plausible thing because he's like, "No, you don't believe in the Dominion. You just don't want people to die." So it would be a plausible thing, except Weyun is the most smarmy, incompetent idiot <laughs> in the entire world. Like the fact yeah. that the Weyun models are used as like the Weyuns are going to massage relations with our allies in this great war. Why would you ever pick someone who is so incompetent and clearly evil to be your voice for that stuff? Like, no oh. wonder the founders lost the war if they the rely on Wei-Yun. idiots like Weyun. Weyun is so good. Jeffrey Kims is amazing, but he is not trustworthy in anything. No, ever. the minute he opens his mouth, you're like, everything this man says is a lie. Like, he is just <laughs> clearly the most shady man. He just comes in and is like, ah, yes. 
this is going to be one of our more difficult sessions today, I can see. <laughs> yep. And then he's like, I don't believe you. And he's like, you've said that every time, Julian. It's like, no, he hasn't. <laughs> and then, then there's the moment where he's like, why would you both be trying to convince me of the same lie? <laughs> Which is the big, like, gotcha realize what's happens moment and so everyone in the audience goes oh he's realized it's a hologram because we all know because we've watched an episode of star trek but then he thinks no sloan's the traitor it can't possibly be that this is a hologram no it's <laughs> as so sloan like is the traitor. extra there's an extra layer and you have to have miles come back and not be injured kayaking and he realizes ah this was not included in the simulation yeah this the, none of you are real machines off yes Benjamin Sisko would have listened to me when I complained about Sloane being a traitor. Which, to be fair, (laughs) Sisko's seen some shit. Sisko would at least listen. Yeah. Sisko doesn't like Sloane. Yeah. And then it reveals that it's all a simulation and the Section 31 arrives wearing murder smocks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the final act of this episode is everything breaks down. Uh, He is exonerated from his... like accused crimes and it's like this wasn't the real interrogation like the we set this up to see like if your brain patterns confirm that this was true or untrue like even his actions don't prove anything they've got like a transmitter in his head that's been monitoring his like mental responses to this ludicrous situation and they confirm that he's not a section uh not a section 31 agent uh he's not a spy and then immediately start trying to recruit him instead you're like since you're not a spy why not be a spy for us <laughs> yep uh because uh in part because like bashir is like a superhero but also like in his off time he enjoys playing spy like there's those episodes those holodeck episodes uh where bashir is off doing james bond shit uh and it dovetails very nicely in his personality the same way like picard being dixon hill and like an archaeologist like actually go together very well in the way that picard does archaeology <laughs> yep uh and I think that stuff's great. It all, uh, also, the like basic premise of Section 31 is super chilling to just show up in Star Trek. It is like maybe the single biggest like bomb that they put into the structure of what the Federation is in the course of DS9. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the fact that they're allowed to just upend um, the Federation like this in like one episode. In like in basically in one 10 minute reveal at the end of an episode is crazy because. Yep. Uh, he shows up and he's like, "No, we we are just a like a black ops, uh, like funded, you know, uh, organization who is within within Starfleet. Starfleet knows about us, kind of, but they don't ask any questions. Yeah, and we're allowed to exist on our own, and basically are given free reign to do the ill shit that needs to be done to protect the Federation. More importantly, uh, like the idea of Section Thirty One was in the original Starfleet Charter, like over two hundred years ago." And created Section 31, and then they were given, like, entire autonomy to just do whatever for 200 years. So they're, like, deep cover that has never reported in since then. Yeah, and it's terrifying. Because uh, they're just, like, monsters. Like, so, this episode has two monologues in a row that are, like, trying to convince Bashir that this thing is actually good. And it's first Wayun trying to convince him that uh being a Dominion spy is good just because the lives would be saved regardless of like who wins a war. Uh and then Sloan tries to convince him that Section 31 has is like necessary uh and needs to be like 
existing to in order to save as many lives in the Federation. But both of these monologues are delivered by the most evil men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's just standing there in the Starship Troopers Nazi uniform, going, "Actually, I think you'll find that we have saved many more lives than we have taken." <laughs> Yep. Uh, it's incredible. But uh, worth pointing out, like, uh, William Sadler, who plays Sloan, is, like, actually an incredibly good actor for this role and ends up selling yes. it way better than the premise should. Like, Sloan, by all appearances and writing, comes off as, like, a super cartoony, evil, fascist man. But uh, part of it is, like, Star Trek and part of it is the actor. Like, he's not wrong and you can sense his conviction in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I like how he plays off Bashir. Like, he never is angry at Bashir for, like, rejecting. He's like, oh, oh well. I'm sure you'll come around eventually. Yeah, because uh, his his whole argument isn't that, like, what they're doing isn't evil. It's just that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good stuff. I, spe- I like the one, because um, this is another one of, like, like Duet, one of those very theatrical people yelling back and forth at each other episodes mm-hmm. uh, of Star Trek. And both him and um, Alexander Siddig as uh, Bashir just kill it. Yeah. Like, there's loads, loads of interrogation scenes where he's just asking Bashir questions. Uh, I think the, my favorite one is probably the one where he's, like, asking him about lying about the genetic modification. And Bashir's just like, I was found out. Like, the most grumpy child who knows exactly where this is going. Yeah. Like, ten minutes before it happens. It's really good. Yep. Uh, and then after he rejects them, basically, they just send him back to his room. And they're like, oh, we thought you were at the conference. As everyone, like, ha- he just immediately tells everyone. And one of the things I really like about uh, DS9 specifically is in a show that, like, in a different show or in a show that even came out like two years later, like Bashir's interaction with Section 31 would be like this deep, dark secret that poisons his relationships. And he just immediately runs off to tell everyone over breakfast. (laughs) And uh, it's great. And, but in that, like Odo helpfully points out that, Oh, this is just like the Tal Shiar, the obsidian order. Like every, every major power has to have black ops, secret agents doing the ill shit that no one wants to do. Right. Uh, yeah, and as the most Starfleet officers, they're all like, "No, we reject that. We could totally stand by our principles and do the right thing, and that's what we have to do, and that's the right thing." Uh, hilariously, the next episode of DS Nine is in the pale moonlight, which well, is that's even more <laughs> hilarious because Cisco has a line like, "I don't know what I would do if I was forced to co- like if I had to choose between compromising my principles and like letting a atrocity happen. I don't know what I would do." And literally, and the next, the next episode, episode is he compromises his principles in one of the best episodes of Star Trek. To be fair, oh man, one of the best shots of Star Trek is him like raising the glass. Yeah, it's so good. Oh, I just wanted to keep watching, but I had to go to bed. <laughs> So, yeah, this is a great episode. The introduction of Section 31 is apparently very controversial. I wasn't watching Star Trek when this happened, so I don't know how the fandom feels about it. Uh, Like, I feel like this is the furthest they ever went in, like, we're going to undermine all of Roddenberry's utopian Star Trekisms. But in the face of what Star Trek had become by season six, I feel like it's, like, a really necessary thing. Because the Federation is, like, well-meaning, root beer drinking, whatever, would not have survived the Dominion War as is. Like, the power friend, this isn't anime, the power friendship doesn't hold up that well, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the idea that everyone has to live with the knowledge that their continued existence relies upon stuff like this. Uh, I mean, I would say that this is not, like, later stuff happens in DS9 that is goes way further than this. Uh, sure, but uh, I don't think I don't think much of that stuff actually undermines the idea of Star Trek the way this does. 
They win a war because of Section 31's genocide. Oh, that's true. But it's all because of Section 31. Like, this is the introduction of Section 31, and that's where this all comes from. Oh, sure. But, like, it is essential to the, like, the fact that they don't all get, like, wiped out. Like, I don't know. It is very interesting the way that DS9 completely, uh... I didn't say undermine, but, like, completely shifts its focus on, like, the people rather than the idea of organizations as things that will save us. Mm-hmm. Because um, especially as like DS9 is not a federation uh, station, it yeah. is an independent station with a federation head who in the books actually doesn't have a federation head at all. Uh, that is like Quark is in the federation, you know, all these people kind of coming together and doing their own thing is what is way better. So I, I don't know. DS9 is a very good show. I like it a lot. I could talk about it for ages, but we've got more episodes to cover. Uh, I have one brief note. Uh, if you read the trivia and errata on this episode of memory alpha <laughs> originally the like screenplay that was submitted for this episode is about bashir like just on a planet getting stuff done and then he uh gets caught in like this awful bureaucracy and in, the whole episode is like a comedy about the smartest man in the universe has to deal with like the slowest paperwork stuck in the dmv forever and that like one i would love that episode but also like the minute they gave that to uh or steven bear like he looked at it and he was like nope this is about spies this is the, the right idea but the wrong tone let's just make this about a weird inquisition that bashir is stuck in instead and the yep. idea that that is the thing that you like bring as your script note is like the cartoon idea of what studio script notes are but also like actually turn into a great episode like the secret of everyone like oh this the studio handed down these notes we got to change everything I look at my my writer's work it is ruined is that sometimes that's probably like for the best and is a good idea yep it's very cool it is i imagine like being in the room and like I, we've wrote this episode what do you think it's like uh it's about how the federation's a fascist state now Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yep uh so our next episode jackson do you want to intro this one uh yes let me just alt tab to the page i had up earlier it is The Trouble with Tribbles, uh, the second episode of season 13 of the original series, written by David Gerald and directed by Joseph Pevney, in which uh, the Enterprise is going to Deep Space K7, as it is known, nominally for like to, to a system with who is going to control this planet. Uh, Chekhov gives a big monologue at the start about uh, oh, the Klingons hold a claim, but then we hold a claim, uh, and so we have to go to deal with this stuff, and so they head over uh, to the station to deal with this, but it's a very kind of uh, small-scale thing I want to point while out, they all go on shore leave. I want to point out that the planet is called Sherman's Planet, which is like the least Star Trek, but also the most old-timey sci-fi name for a planet. Uh, Star Trek planets have like a very specific naming idea to them, and Sherman's planet just sounds like some like dime store novel planet, <laughs> and I like that as like th this is still not the Star Trek that we talk about and love in many ways, and you just see the creeping in of like the culture of sci-fi fiction of this era around the edges of these shows, and that's like one of the things I appreciate going back to these now as like an adult. Come on down to Sherman's planet, which is claimed by both sides. <laughs> <laughs> so they head over to the space station, uh, and <laughs> Kirk immediately gets a call. They're on red alert. It's like, as an emergency at the space station, things are going down. So they assume the Klingons are there, things are kicking off. And In fact, the Klingons are there. There's a ship docked at the station. 
Uh, are they there to start? Isn't it? It didn't the whole thing where they were like, oh no, they're not the first time. Right, right, you're right. That's the second time where they're like, there's a ship here. We're going to call them and let them know that Klingons are coming. And then it pans out to the Klingons sitting next to yes, the station. No, no, I, remember, I remember that. Yes. Uh, that's later on. In the first instance, they, the red alert's on and they like sprint to the bridge and I'm like, what's the emergency? What do we need to do? They, they like warp there. Uh, and then, and then they go down and the guy's like, hello, Captain Kirk, we need you to guard this locker of wheat for us. Uh, quadro Triticale. Triticale. Oh, Quadro Triticale. Yes. Quadro Triticale. <laughs> it's a high yield grain that can only, it's like a hardy wheat that will only grow prop, like the only thing that will grow properly on Sherman's planet. So this is an episode that has like a big reputation uh, for being one of the bit uh, the main comedy episodes of the original series, uh, specifically around scenes like all the triples multiplying. That is the concept of the episode. But it begins with fifteen straight amazing minutes of uh, Captain Kirk being like lectured about high yield grain and not knowing what the fuck is going on, and like walking up to Chekhov and is like, "Have you heard about this?" And then Chekhov goes, "Ah, oh, yes, Kodrachukeli." The Russians <laughs> invented that because the Ru- <laughs> like. Uh, Chekhov is a new character in season two because he wasn't in the first season and his main character beat is that everything is created by the Russians and that's great and it's really weird given that like one it's like I get of the era and everything and I get like it's cultural importance in like a meta sense but in the fiction of the world Earth's government has been like united for like 150 years at this point and he's still banging on about Russia. And also, uh, the thing that's hilarious to me is this is basically the idea they had for Picard in, like, the script Bible of TNG, if you remember. Like, his whole thing was that he's proud to be French, and he loves talking about how France is the greatest country in the world and was the first at everything. And the idea that, like, this kind of, like, broad comedy bullshit was going to be in TNG is, like, hilarious and kind of the most dated idea to me. I'm glad they did not go with this. In three lines in a row, Chekhov brings up Wodka... Leningrad and Cossacks. Yep. Uh, Leningrad, <laughs> like, which uh, at this yep. point has not been named Leningrad in like uh, 25 years for us. Yeah. Recording. And I'm just like, do you think this guy might be Russian? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a feeling. Yep. So yeah, he, uh, they're all there to lecture him about the wheat. And meanwhile, as everyone's on shore leave, they barge into the bar where this cartoon huckster used car salesman named Cyrano Jones is trying to sell this like, uh, like no nonsense weary bartender on buying a bunch of bullshit that he doesn't need, uh, including uh, sticky and flame gems, which is were just like it seemed like colored pieces of plastic that he laid down on the counter. Uh, and the guy, the guy's like, I have a bunch of those. And he just like puts out a whole case of them. And then he's like, what about this glow water? And he's like, I use that to polish the flame gems. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, what about this? And he pulls out this tiny little ball of fur, which is the Tribble. And Uhura's like at the bar and she's like, oh, that's cute. I like that. And it's like cooing and ridiculous. And uh, it becomes this ridiculous comedy scene of them arguing over the price of this Tribble as Uhura falls in love with it. Uh, and I love how much this like old school vaudevillian comedy duo act just like bounces off of the Star Trek characters. Uh, the thing with the comedy of Star Trek, especially in like this episode, but all the episodes of Star Trek that are co- like funny, uh, the best part isn't that the characters act out of character. It's that Starfleet characters are inherently lampoonable because they're ridiculous stuck in the mud idiots sometimes. And the well, way they, they, that like, like street smart, like ludicrous characters bounce off of them is always funny. 
Well, it comes out of like how we were talking about the last episode that was originally a comedy, but then becomes like this fucking nightmare episode. Uh, these are very similar. Like you can see the link between how you go from comedy put upon Starfleet to incredibly serious fascists put upon Starfleet. Yep. Like they're not that different. And you watching these two episodes back to back, I didn't realize how like a much of a through line there would be between them. Because Kirk is basically Bashir in the comedy version of this episode where everyone's like, well, now you've got to do this wheat. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> How does everybody know so much about Triticale? Uh, <laughs> Quadro Triticale. Uh, well, I think it's, uh, he's like, everyone knows about this wheat, but me. <laughs> yeah. And then the line you were talking about with the, the Klingons is they, they, um, they, they see another ship there and they go, uh, heads up, the Klingon's going to be coming soon. And then they're just like, the the view screen, which is normally always a static screen, but the view screen does like a camera pan and goes, I know, because the Klingons are standing in my office and the Klingon like mugs the camera. Yep. <laughs> and so we it's have... It's ludicrous. We have uh, the Klingon Captain Koloth, who is important because we will meet said Koloth again in DS9 someday. Uh, the same character played by the same actor, which is great. Uh, there's three Klingons that you meet again in DS9 as like proper Star Trek Klingons at that point. Uh, and we'll eventually try to cover all the episodes in which they appear uh, leading up to that episode, probably. Um, yes. But this is, so I don't like, I'm not super well watched on TOS. Like I watched a bunch when I was younger and kind of never like went and did the completion run as like an adult. Um, and so this is kind of my first interaction in, probably 20 years with the the original series Klingons, and they're awful. I hate them so much. They're these, so bad. These, like, mustache-twirling, brown-faced, fake, like, Spaniard, swords-buckling, pirate, idiot Klingons. I hate them. They're so bad. <laughs> with their ridiculous, like... Out, like it, they basically look like space pirates. And I hate them. I hate, like, all of their weird, like, ethnic implications of they're all, like, they're all, like, swarthied up through makeup and facial hair. Uh, it's all bad yeah like there's a lot of critique you can give about later klingons and how like those deal kind of badly with race and like remember that the episode where Worf like teaches all the klingons to be black but also like that's an interesting episode about the idea of yeah. like generational uh, racial awareness and like teaching people like heritage like it, yeah like it's, it's, that's it's not a bad episode it's, it can be problematic and it's very dated but the stuff that star trek tackles once they acknowledge that oh yeah our klingons are kind of like racial analogs for black people especially once like Worf guide like michael dorn guided the hand of that as like a black man in america and like one of the two black men on the show like Jordy doesn't get episodes about blackness but Worf sure does mm -hmm. uh, which is like definitely problematic and like my point was that you compare that to this yeah it is worlds apart yep uh, uh and crazy. they're just they're just awful villains like it reminds me of when the frankie were supposed to be the big villains of season one of tng and they're just like these like they, they basically dress the same for one which is weird uh like, early Frangies also had all that weird, like, pattern textured pants and shirts and nonsense. Uh, but, all, like, this idea of, like, these gregarious evil villains seems to permeate early Star Trek, and I don't understand it at all. Yeah, it's very un-Star Trek, but very off, like, sci-fi kind of genres. Just, yep. here's our wacky villain aliens. Uh, like, this episode ends with a gag of all of the triples being teleported to the Klingon ship before they warp off. Um, that would, like, break down their engine, essentially. Basically, yep. 
Uh, like basically killing these Klingons is the implication of what it would do. They just get stranded in space. I mean, by the, the assumption is that they would kill all the Tribbles anyway, because the thing with Tribbles and Klingons is that they're like blood coated mortal enemies. Like Tribbles only react negatively to Klingons, and Klingons seem to have like an instant disgust to Tribbles. Yep. And I think uh, I think in the DS9 episode that calls back to this episode, Worf mentions that Tribbles and Klingons like basically had like a war at some point and Klingons eradicated most of the Tribbles in the galaxy. Good. Good. Yeah. The Tribble Queen will remember this. <laughs> yep. So yeah, we they have the Tribble problem, which is like the main plot of the episode, but literally everybody on Earth knows what the plot of Tribble Tribbles is, even if you've never seen it or don't watch Star Trek. They get these cute things, the cute things multiply like rabbits, but like more so, and then eventually everything is overrun with these cute things that they don't know what to do with. Uh, that's it. <laughs> yep, it's just basically an excuse to have Kirk walk onto the bridge and have the bridge just fucking covered in Beanie Babies. Yep. <laughs> Like my, my favorite the, thing is when they, my favorite thing is when they start just carrying them in giant buckets around. They're like, oh, there's so many of these. Or the ridiculous scene where they go to get food in the like commissary and Kirk pulls out the tray and there's just like a tribble sticking out of his glass and his plate is covered in tribbles and he's like, this is my chicken sandwich and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah. it's really good. It's goofy. It's good stuff. Uh, but uh-huh. the, the Tribbles dovetail into the Klingon plot where like, the Klingons are here and they're like, oh, the Klingons are going to try to start something. And the Klingons are like, we're not going to try to start every, anything. unless Except for like the brawl that they start with Scotty in the bar, which is great. Because they get in this fist fight because the Klingons show up and start insulting uh, the Federation and the Enterprise and blah, blah, blah. And then Kirk like takes them all in for a debriefing and he's like, I can't believe Chekhov threw the first punch. And Chekhov's like, I didn't do it, sir. And then Scotty's like, re- reluctantly, I did it. And then he runs down what happened and Kirk's like, oh, you were just defending my honor. And he's like, no, sir, I never would have gotten a fight over something so silly as that. And it's like, what happened then? <laughs> they called the Enterprise a garbage scow. And Kirk's just like the most put upon parent of these children. Uh, and it's yeah. weird because uh, we were talking a couple weeks ago and it's not really worth linking, so we're not going to do it. But there was this article about how like modern culture gets Kirk wrong in how Kirk mm-hmm. is portrayed as like the Zap Brannigans of the world. And I kind of roll my eyes at some of it. Cause I think it went a little too far in like forgetting that people don't actually talk much about Kirk. They mostly just talk about the parodies at this point, but um, it is a good illustration here that like Kirk actually isn't that different than what we think of as like Picard is like the disapproving father of everyone on the ship. He's just the most put-upon dad of Star Star Trek. Except for the fact that he has Spock, who basically serves as either his, like, conscience or just best Twitter friend who shits on him all the time. Yeah. Like, he's, he's like, he's like, he's like your cool sardonic friend. Yeah. Spock doesn't go anywhere. Like, it is not a thing I see in modern television of the idea of a character who is always just following you around. No. if, if there's a scene with Kirk in it, Spock is there. So the actual scene, yeah, okay. the actual archetype exists in like specifically like romantic comedies. The, Spock is the sassy gay friend of the forthright protagonist. Yes, <laughs> fuck, he a hundred percent is. Yeah, no. like he comes in and then gives like a ten minute monologue about the like uses of quadrilateral in order to show up Kirk for knowing nothing. <laughs> Yeah, but then every time, like, something serious happens, Spock's always there to arch an eyebrow and say something ridiculous to, like, undermine everybody else's authority. There's so many times where just the gag is just Kirk and Spock look at each other. That's the whole gag. Yep. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, they literally are inseparable. Like, they're just always just the two of them walking into a situation and dealing with it. But 
Spock never seems like like he. It's clear it's what he wants to do. He loves Kirk. They're always gonna like go around together. But he's never like excited. He's always just kind of put upon by Kirk, who is put upon by the situation. Like it's this dual. Uh, like they're both kind of trapped in this shitty job being dads of the ship in the same way. It's yep. good. Uh, and the episode basically climaxes with this uh, Agatha Christie ridiculous theatrical everyone gets in one room and we examine a culprit and we like, well, find the culprit. Specifically before that, we need to point out maybe the most like n- memorable scene of this show, which is oh, right, yes. they realize that if the tribbles multiply this rapidly, if like they got if they were in the station, they would get into the grain. The uh, the triticale is in danger, and they go to examine the bins, and a bunch of the tribbles like the tribbles got into it and multiplied a bunch, but some a lot of them are dying because the grain has been poisoned. And it, like, it was like a weird Klingon plot, and they figure out who did it. But it also involves Kirk opening the door and a literal mountain of tribbles falls on him. And then slowly, like, two stagehands in the back of the set started pitching tribbles out of the chute every couple seconds. So Kirk's I just think deli- you mean I think you mean Bashir and Miles. Uh, it's not Bashir and Miles, it's Jadzia and Cisco. Oh, Jadzia and I forget which ones are in yeah. which subplots. Uh, but, but, yeah. but, um... But, like, just as he's delivering this, like, ten-minute monologue that's, like, actually about, like, plot stuff and is vaguely important, like, every 30 seconds a Tribble just falls down and hits him (laughs) in the head with a little squeak. (laughs) It's so good. And he doesn't, like, get up. He just kind of sits there letting all these Tribbles hit him. He is actually buried chest deep in Tribbles, and that's, like, it's amazing that there's just that many of them in that scene for no good reason. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Some, poor, some that, poor lady had to sew together carpet for, like, <laughs> three weeks to make these tribbles. Oh, God, yeah. No, the money is on the screen. Yep. Uh, and then after that, there's the get everyone in a room scene, and they're like, oh, is it uh, Cyrano? Is he is he the bad guy? And he's like, no, it couldn't be him. Uh, and then they slowly, like, the um, Klingons becoming, like, repellent. The tri- tribble suddenly becomes very plot important as he walks over to a guy and the tribble reacts and he's like, this man is secretly a Klingon. (laughs) And the idea that that could be a plot in Star Trek is fucking mental. Uh, I mean, I guess, I mean, there's that, again, there's an episode where Troy is just a Romulan (laughs) for no good reason. And it's bad. (laughs) Like the concept is bad. Whenever they do that, it's bad. And in this, it's like, just, he's just kind of, you know, slightly more like darker skinned and yep. that's it that's all they do and it's like mm, mm, 60s 60s yep. uh worth pointing out that Cyrano's punishment for bringing tribbles on board and ruining everybody's day is to right? is to either go to a prison colony for 20 years for in, like uh infesting them with a harmful species or to pick up every tribble on the station which spock estimates will take 17.9 years <laughs> because there are over a, a million tribbles <laughs> And that's just played as, like, a comedy beat, and he just goes picking them up. Yep. <laughs> and that's... And, and, like, the best thing about that is how he's the one being punished for this, and these tribbles are going to be here ostensibly forever, uh, which kind of shuts the station down, but the sh- storekeeper, bartender, is still there, buried under triple. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so they're both just trapped in this triple picking up hell for 19 years. It's yep. ridiculous. And then all of the Enterprise's tribbles, as we mentioned earlier, get beamed on board the Klingon ship, where... They will uh, supposedly cause the death of all the Klingons. I don't know. Everyone on the bridge basically has a big laugh as it cuts to credits. Yeah, they just all go. <laughs> 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 is basically how this ends. 
Uh, uh, the one other point I want to notice is the point where uh, Kirk goes, these triples are taking everything from us and nothing to, with nothing in return. And then Uhura, with full sincerity, turns to him and goes, they do give us something in return, Captain. They give us love. <laughs> Good. Good, I'm glad. Uh, my one last note about this episode is because everyone's on shore leave, Kirk wears his wraparound uniform the entire episode. Which so is, what is that? Is that his, like, just casual uniform? Yes, that's, like, his casual uniform, but it's, like, the most, like dated sexy loungewear idea of like this it, he looks cool because he's wearing this uniform that like is plunging neckline and like it's very tight and it's it's ridiculous <laughs> like the the wraparound uniform is like to me the iconic kirk look from this show because it is so goofy yeah it's nonsense yeah i do like i don't understand how anyone thought this was ever cool to wear <laughs> different times i mean look times did not change that much they gave picard that stupid like velvet jacket for like three seasons of tng that's not even close to the same thing that is not on the same level but you know that they got it because they're like man this is gonna make picard look cool and it doesn't (laughs) it does not Uh, i'm looking at the picard jacket the only jacket is the one that does look cool the one where it's like the 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 uniform but yeah but the jacket jacket. it's not cool it is not cool wait you're anti the jacket i am anti the jacket like i think the jacket's (laughs) hilarious but it's clearly made of a different material it's like fuzzier especially like if you watch the blurry versions like it looks like a cartoon and then like early on the jacket had like leather the black part was like leather and even looked dumber like it's just like oh we need to give card something distinct because otherwise he just looks like everyone else and we can't have that and the answer is this the awful leather. velour jacket. I hate it. I hate it so it much. It looks way better in this picture with the leather from like Darmok, where it actually looks deliberately like an outdoors jacket. I get the fucking... idea. I get the idea. But I think the jacket is always bad. Um, uh, I'd say that I would hear you out on on the indoor version. That's dumb. Where he just looks like he's got a gray jumper underneath. But the the one that's actually an outdoor jacket is fine. I don't know. Remind me. Remind me when we get to the book to talk about Star Trek jackets and Vaughn's opinions about them. By the way, because I didn't actually write it down oh, in my notes, but there's a oh, line about right. it. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, what better teaser could we have? <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, we're going to take a break and join us on the other end for Section 31 Abyss. Section 31, Abyss. I just have to say it like that, because it's called Abyss. The book is called Abyss. It is by Jeffrey Lang and David Weddle. Section 31, Abyss. Yes. Abyss. (laughs) This is the third of the Section 31 series, which eventually we might read all of. I don't know. Uh, It is the continuation of where things are. Uh, This came out in 2001. Uh, 
it, it is a book. It is a book, that's for sure. I am going to run down where we are at if you did not listen to the last two episodes. Right now, the DS9 station is in a state because they jettisoned their power core and need a new one uh, to function and are going to get one in the course of this book. Uh, Kira is in control of the station. Her second in command is Vaughn. Uh, Elias Vaughn? That's his first name, right? Elias Vaughn, yes. Yes, Elias Vaughn is like a hundred-year-old Federation guy who's done it all and secretly been in all, like his fingers been in every pie and he's basically big boss Star Trek character. Uh, I love uh, him a lot. An, Im- an important scene, just if you didn't listen to the uh, last episode, is he l- l- takes on the job of DS9 because he's like, if you don't let me do this, I will quit and you can't let me quit because I know too much and you can't fire me because I know too much. And they're like, well, we can't control him. He knows too much. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um... Ro Laren is chief of security on the station. Uh, Ezri and Bashir are in a relationship. Ezri is dealing with being a joint trill and slowly coming into her own powers. Uh, there is a um, a Jem'Hadar who has been sent by Odo to like be on the station as like a liaison and like to learn what the solids are like, it, like what actual people function as that's not part of the Dominion. And uh, Tyranitar is like a twenty three. Is he twenty three? Do you 22. remember? Okay, he's 22-year-old Jem'Hadar, which is, like, a billion years in Jem'Hadar years. Uh, yep. He doesn't need Ketrasel White. He, like, has a personality. Like, it's stunted, but it's a growing one, for sure, and a curiosity. Um, they, oh, Jake Cisco uh, is lost in the wormhole as he went to go and try to talk to his father. Um, and basically, the wormhole happened, and he's been lost, but nobody knows that it happened because he lied to everyone. And uh, what else has happened? Kira has been excommunicated from the Bajoran faith for revealing the plot of the last two th- the books, which is not worth uh, summarizing other than she did it and crossed the Vedics and then they kicked her out of the church and now everyone acts really weird around her. Uh, Quark is still on the station and is in love with Rolaren. I think that's everything. Yes, that is everything. A okay. lot happens in those first books that like sets up an interesting new status quo. I'm actually really pleased about how different the status quo is from DS9. Yep. They did a lot. Uh, oh, uh, worth mentioning, there are uh, two new characters that are, like, vaguely important. There is, uh, oh, where can I find their whole full name? The Andorian. Where are they? Shar. Yeah, I know it's Shar, but they have a, uh, yeah, Tirith Shar Chathane is of Andorian. Yes. And um, do you remember the name? Oh, Prin Tenme. Prin Tenme is an ensign who had some like weird reactions when Vaughn showed up on the station. And we'll get into that. So, Jackson, why don't you run down what this book is actually about? So, uh, this book begins with a just the most cold open television bullshit with. Everyone standing around in ops, like vaguely talking about some plan that we don't know what it is that's going to happen for about 10 pages as it is revealed uh, that Nog has convinced the Starfleet Engineering Corps to drag Empoknor next door to, to DS9 in order to like transfer the power core and restore DS9 to its former glory. I mean, they weren't using uh, it for anything. No, which is an amazing like bit of like oh someone figured out that that was lying around and could totally be the solution in plotting. Yep. <laughs> and know. their idea is to transplant the core, which is going to be a very delicate operation that will take the entire book and then leave Empoknor kind of around for spare parts because DS9 gets damaged a lot and Cardassian parts are not easy to come by. 
And the important part of this uh, opening to me is how it establishes Vaughn's role as secretly knows everyone, everything about everyone, because he's just that perceptive. As like goes around and going, ah, uh, that Nog kid's got some rough, uh, like sure has his issues, but he's got style. And everyone's like, why do you say Nog has style? You're talking about Nog here. And then, and he, then he works in up. with all those ships and a giant station in tow. <laughs> and he's like, uh, nice working with you, everyone. <laughs> And then Vaughn's like, I told you he had style. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. Uh, but then after that, we go into the plot proper, which nominally is Bashir and Esri are going on holiday. Uh, yeah. Which you don't know won't last because the book is called Abyss. They're, specifically, uh, they're going to Earth. They are because going to Bashir Earth. is going to show Esri his like life and family and stuff. Oh, I I actually fucking want that book so bad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'd be so good. The relationship is so fucking doomed. Oh god, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, and so before the section thirty one like intrudes in this plot, there's a whole chapter of you waiting for that to happen. As Bashir basically monologues about it, the value of packing. <laughs> uh, so being Julian Bashir and being a cartoon man, one of his hobbies <laughs> is that he's very good at like speed efficiency packing, which is a real thing people do, where you like try to be as like light packer and get it all like neatly tucked in and packed well so you can just look at it. If he existed today, he'd have a YouTube channel where he just told you how to pack a good suitcase and I would probably watch it to be fair. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my... Bashir as like, uh, here's what I got today. Bashir is just Drew Scanlon. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's just a whole YouTube subculture, right? Like, yeah, I know. I didn't, hadn't like made that connection, but God. <laughs> yep. So then he's like uh, talking to Ezri. Well, his whole thing is like, oh, Jedzia was a pretty good packer too. Maybe I'll just go, blah, blah, blah. And he goes in and Ezri's like busy just <laughs> making a pot because she's like, I decided yep. to get in touch with my prior selves today. Uh, and Bashir's like, oh, you're useless and you need to get ready and we need to get going, blah, blah, blah. And they, they don't have a fight about it, but Bashir's just being a jerk. And then when she's like trying to get things together, he walks into the other room and there is Agent Cole. You killed the other one, so it's me now. <laughs> Did Sloane die? I don't actually remember those episodes very well. Yeah, they the second, the third to what the plot of the ending of DS Nine is all about Miles and uh, Bashir going into Sloane's dying mind in order to get the cure for the uh, God. I don't remember that genocide. at all. I can't wait to watch DS Nine. <laughs> oh, it's the one. It's like the it's the the one of the like finale uh, arc that is Miles and Bashir's like quest which is like one of the darkest episodes but it's also just a buddy episode with those two for the last time it's pretty yeah, okay good. that's fair no i that sounds great <laughs> but yeah sloan's gone so we have agent cole who comes in and basically gives a monologue about how you are going to work for us this time and here's why and you basically have two whole chapters of him laying out this situation uh while bashir is like kind of drugged and incapable of fighting back but it's clear they don't actually like want to hurt him. They just want him to do their dirty work. Yeah. Uh, and he explains over a long time, because they keep getting interrupted in tangents, that um, 
Oh, how do they actually explain it? There's I this. will. I'll explain. So there's yeah, okay. this. There's this guy named Lockin, and he is yes. also a doctor who was genetically modified when he was a child, like Bashir, and he was on New New Beijing. That's the city, right? New Beijing. New Beijing or, is the city. Yes, is the city, planet, station, whatever that was attacked during the Dominion War, and everyone was killed except for a Lockin. And Section Thirty One recruited Lockin then to be an agent because they knew that they could use his grief to let him like. To make him agree to like use his inconsiderable talents in ways that people who are augmented don't use their talents because they're all like afraid of being discovered. Uh, and they had him go on a mission with a bunch of groups to go into the Badlands to. Uh, he like he's sent there first by Section 31, right? That's the thing. Yes. Okay. So he's sent to go on this planet in the Badlands where they discovered an abandoned Gem Hadar hatching facility that was like about to be like spooled up as the war was ending and they basically just left it almost completed. Uh, and he goes with Section 31, but when he's there, he goes rogue and he kills all the other Section 31 agents supposedly and he has now set himself up as like a sovereign territory where he's going to use the Jem'Hadar for nefarious purposes and they don't know what, but they need Bashir to go and stop him because Bashir is the only person who can get close to him as another augment person who could understand what he's going through and try to like get under his like considerable like you know, powers of perception like would ferret out every spy, but Bashir is the obvious one because he won't even pretend to be a spy, but he'll still be a spy because he's Julian Bashir. <laughs> yep. uh, and so he leaves and he's like, uh, you're totally going to do this for us. You can't say no because that's who you are. You're Julian Bashir. And then he immediately goes to... um uh kira and goes i can't say no i'm julian bashir i need to do this now and she's and so like, like we wouldn't want you to say no anyway we can just do this and then we can take him down by doing this mission very well and we'll get the dirt all we need to take him down well no because he uh i'll get to that later but first they um they like gather a team uh so they decide that the mission is going to be bashir uh row because she knows the Badlands, because yes. she uh, was a Maquis. And the planet uh, was so the planet they were going to was a site that they were going to put a Maquis base and then decided not to because it's that remote and that hard to get to. It's that dangerous. It's that real. Yep. Uh, and they're also taking uh, Tyranitar because he's a fucking Jem'Hadar and can shoot anyone to death. Yep. Uh, and then Esri's like, excuse me, I definitely need to go too so that there's a plot in this book. Yep. Um, so Esri comes along too and then Vaughn before they leave goes up to Bashir and goes I know what you're thinking you're thinking you're going to get the dirt on section 31 during this mission you're thinking you're going to expose them once and for all and take them down and I'm here to tell you don't even try it and then uh, Bashir leaves going why would he say that is he a section 31 agent which no come on Bashir you thought you were clever yeah yeah uh, and then they go off on their mission and um, just head into the Badlands. Yep. Uh, once there, they discover a derelict uh, Romulan ship that's like a new prototype ship that like everyone's like, oh, this was... Or Tyranitar knows what it is because Tyranitar had all this like knowledge the Dominion had on all this stuff. And he was like, this was only ferret, used to ferret like spies around Romulan territory and they never used it in Federation territory. Uh, but it's been here and it's been like gutted and everyone's been killed or and tortured on the ship. And they find a message from Lockin where he's like basically called himself the like new Kondunian Singh. And he's like, this is the new Federation and we're going to overthrow the old Federation. And this is here is like a warning to everyone. Don't come into my territory, blah, blah, blah. 
it's it's a very ridiculous thing because like he's like clearly set this ship up to be like okay they'll here is the place that they can teleport on to the left we have the big scary thing then they're gonna go down this corridor and then they're gonna see one body and then they're gonna find the other bodies and then they're gonna see the message like and Bashir's like this is the most theatrically placed nonsense thing uh we have to destroy it. No one can know about this Romulan ship and no one can know that we do it. So they basically do Section 31's Black Ops dirty work and uh, overload the engine core so yep. that it looks like it just blew up in its own accident uh, and no one, there's no trace of them or it. Yep. Uh, I want to circle around just a second because I, f- I forgot I have I have some notes from the book. One of the uh, like little character touches that I like made, the especially the first part of this book, really good is when they're all discussing what to do. There's this moment where Kira is just like watching everyone talk through the plan and she notes that this like free exchange of information where like everyone asks questions and everyone gives really straight answers is like a uniquely Starfleet thing to do and she's like it's really weird weird seeing all these people communicate even Ro who's like another Bajoran talks like Starfleet and it's one of my recurring favorite things in DS9 where the aliens sit down and talk about how weird the Federation is sometimes. And I like the idea that one of the Federation's like quote unquote powers is they just have, they're just very good communicators. And by being forthright and asking clear questions, that's like the, their ability to problem solve as like a whole nation's not the right word, but as like a whole group of people. I like that this is like very clearly someone who is into Star Trek who wrote this because it basically says the Federation's greatest power is the meeting room scene, yep. which is true. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally true. It's one of my favorite things true. about Star Trek. Like, no other TV show does that, but is the defining part of Star Trek is that when anything happens, it's like, right, meeting room. Everyone tell me yep. what your deal is and we're going to work this out. Yep. So then uh, while they're on their way to this planet after they blow up the Robin ship, they have some downtime where they can talk. And it's reve- two things are revealed that are important. One, Rolaren has a thing called a fractal knife, which is apparently very illegal and very dangerous. And we don't really know what it does other than it's cool as shit. Uh, and also, Rolaren reveals that Captain Picard wears very distinctive cologne. And yes, if does. on the Enterprise, you could always tell when Captain Picard had entered a room because of the way he smells, and also that he's a wine snob, but we knew that. Uh, we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but I cannot tell you how upset I am at the idea that Picard smells. That's <laughs> <laughs> Picard coming. Think, I think that's Picard. Look, they all live on a ship that like has to generate and recycle air. They're all Starfleet officers who wear uniforms and take sonic showers, blah, blah, blah. Nobody smells like anything. Like the Star Trek ships are definitely very, very sterile smelling. Uh, that's I mean, I, like, I imagine DS9 smells a lot. I imagine yeah. the Enterprise smells of nothing. Yeah. Like an utter distinct lack of smells unless you go into everyone's room where there's like 17 flowers for no good reason. Like everyone <laughs> is really into potted plants. Maybe that's why, because the air is so stale and every, or like not stale, but sterile. And everyone's like, I need some smells. I need some smells. My room's just going to be full of plants. It's like if you, it's, it's like if you're in that kind of like office building that is so air conditioned that it, you don't feel anything basically. Yeah. But that was your whole life. Yeah. That is what the enterprise is. Yeah. You're just going to be on this ship for 20 years. But also with this single wafting smell of one captain, which you can smell from miles away, because nothing, there's no other smell on the ship. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> you just stand there, and you can always tell where Picard is, because no matter where you are, the smell carries. That's and then he's, and then he's the going to tell you how much your taste in wine sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's very Picard. <laughs> uh, the, the third piece of information that Ro has uh, to drop on us is that Odo, in his time... Uh, 
created like a database of dirt on literally everyone. Well, she tells us, the, not the not the people on the ship. This is just oh the yeah, internal. No level. one else yeah. knows about this because she's a security officer. So she like hacks into all his files and is like, "All right, what's the stuff that I'm gonna have as a security officer?" And one of the things is just dirt on everyone that she's never gonna use, but just has to presumably be used in a later book, maybe or maybe not. And and apparently it is like dirt that is like so bad that she like re- re- she's like, man, I can't believe Odo didn't use this during the war, but I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, because she's like, oh, I know it's dirt that would seem that would be super bad, but like it's all very personally specific yeah. badness. Yeah. It's not like dirt that could overthrow any kind of military action, but it's dirt sure. That but could fuck like up she implies that it, bad. she implies that it would actually cause like affect good change if like uh, not good change, but a a decent amount of change if it was used properly. Mm-hmm. So. I'm sh- I'm excited for whatever row security book comes up to like deal with that stuff later. And yep. also, uh, I want to just tell you right now that the book ends before she's able to stab a single person with the fractal knife. It's a so, real bummer. She mostly just uses phasers. I was like, oh, fractal knife. What? Sh- that's gonna be a- like this book is gonna have so much stupid action that I'm not gonna like. At least give me someone getting completely owned by this fractal knife. No, it yep. won't. But anyway, they get to the planet. And they're like, okay, we need to make our infiltration to this planet. We we have to make a plan. And then uh, within five seconds, they are blown to bits. Uh, yeah. Yep. Because they're just in a runabout. It's fucking useless. Yep. <laughs> and I, when they when they take the runabout, they mention that runabouts have like a very like low return of like survivability on DS9. It's like, oh, take this one, bring it back in one piece. We always run burn through runabouts, and this is a good one. <laughs> yep. Uh, and immediately are attacked by like a wet weapons platform and like attack ships that are these monstrosities that are cobbled together from like Romulan and Klingon and Federation parts that are all just like strapped together, but like really expertly strapped together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they crash and uh, they're able to beam Ro and Tyranitar down to the planet. Uh, but then Bashir and Ezri don't get they like the transformer. The transporter blows before they can do that, and so they have to do this controlled descent where they crash and the ships like intact, but they are like thrown unconscious and are captured by Lockin's forces, which are all yep. the Jem'Hadar that he has started to breed. The convenient teleporter bug of we need an A and B plot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, so then the rest of the book mostly follows Rose's adventures on the ground and Bashir and Esri's invention, uh, adventures inside the base. Yep. Uh, and nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. So Ro and Tyranitar, Ro uh, mentions that when she, or we, we discover that Ro has been keeping secret from everyone that while she was there with the Maquis, they met the Ingavi, which are a bunch of like arboreal monkey people who... Uh, also crash landed on that planet like years and years ago and just like let live there and uh basically like they met them as the maquis and they like Ro, and then they'll put up with tyranitar even though they're clearly terrified of him uh because Lockin's forces are decimating them and killing off everyone and there's like this horrible scene where they like take her to a grove where like Lockin had like children nailed to trees and there's just like piles of ch- child skeletons on the ground and it's needlessly like edgelordy 
bullshit tragedy to make the plot move along because Lockin, meanwhile, is just being like the most gregarious uh, James Bond villain to Bashir and Ezri. Like, oh, I will cook you dinner and it's the most delicious dinner you've ever had because I have special powers of cooking and I've, <laughs> I've solved cloning and I've solved cryo freezing and I've solved all these things because I'm busy using all of my mind, which you, Julian, will not do because you're too busy being afraid of being yourself. And, uh... <laughs> Ezri constantly takes every opportunity to undermine them, even though she knows the mission is to go there to try to, like, get, like, curry his favor. And the first thing she does is open her mouth and start undermining all of that because she's the fucking worst in this book. I do not like Ezri in this book. And so you said when you read this book that uh, there was some Julian Ezri stuff that was maybe going to be, like... uh, contentious about how I, we form like, their characters. So I know you really like Ezri. I just assumed that you would be like on Ezri's side in the plot no, stuff No, I of just this think book. she's written like garbage. Okay, good. I'm glad she that's the case. She wouldn't do this. Like, I, it's not that I think that her actions are good. It's that I, I don't buy that she'd be this stupid. Like, this is a character who has literally like done a mission on the show where she chases like that like CSI episode where she's got that gun. Yep. She's not an idiot. She's not going to go up to a James Bond villain and go, how could you lie to me, Bashir? You are saying his things are good. And then he basically goes, like, I'm on a fucking mission here. Well, Christ. They, they do have the, like, chapter and a half where the thing that you, it, like, the plot beat happens where Bashir's, like, trying to, like, get curry this guy's favor. But maybe he actually started to believe him and maybe that he actually will side with him. And then Ezra's like, oh, no, maybe he actually has gone too far and I'll never get him back. And then that's clearly not the case, but not before every character thought that thing. And Bashir's like, no, I did have my doubts. And Ezra's like, I know I doubted you. How could this ever happen? Even though it's Star Trek, we clearly know everyone is a good guy here. Come on. It's it's amazing because there's like a scene. The the first like tour of the base ends and they go around everything and Ezri's like talking the entire time and basically stopping him and Bashir from having any meaningful interaction so she doesn't have to find out whether Bashir will say yes or no and they finally ask the question like are you going to work with me yes or no and Ezri's like if you say no you are dead to me forever and then he's uh oh no if you if you don't say no you're dead to me forever and he says yes and then she basically hysterically runs away back yep. to the, like what what is this this is not what Esri does uh and then they go on for another whole chapter as she like doesn't talk to him in the prison cell and he's like you have to understand i'm only trying to prevent loss of life here and she's like how dare you do this to me julian <laughs> and i'm like getting mad about it because this is bullshit i like Ezri a lot and this is it's dumb uh, and then obviously that scene ends with uh her being left in the cell julian taken to like work on the super weapon no. so what happens is they basically almost get in a fist fight about it and yep. as that happens like julian like goes to like cover her mouth to tell her to shut up and like slips her something in her mouth yep. and yep. yeah as as he's like let out she's like oh it's a combat julian said we'd lost the combatages he was clearly working on this one in his cell when he was being petulant and so now she has to like do that to like short out the force field so she can escape which she does so while julian's off doing the thing he was supposed to do now Ezri gets to do some like black ops sneak around some vents which mostly involves her complaining about how dusty the vents are and sabotaging some shit <laughs> These vents are dusty. I've never been in a dusty vent before. I am but a frail woman. Yep. And so while she's doing... I mean, she does manage to... So, as is happening, uh, 
Roe and Tyranitar basically get the Ingavi to like expend the last of their effort in like a desperate attempt to attack the Jem'Hadar because the Jem'Hadar are not trained well. Like there's a lot of Tyranitar basically being like, these Jem'Hadar are weak. They're barely worth being called Jem'Hadar. Uh, and he like kills like 15 of them before he's captured and has this conversation with their first where he's like, you serve a false god and then he's like tell us about the tell me about the founders and he tells him about the founders and he's like all right my god is immortal or your god's immortal and he's like no my gods are totally immortal we just worship them anyway and that idea causes the first to like have like a break of faith uh to where he's like well there are no gods there are only us and we are slaves and decides to just like uh, he he decides that he's going to, like, guide the course of the Jem'Hadar. Meanwhile, Ezri is, like, poisoning all of the Petrosel <laughs> White uh, yep. to, to cause the Jem'Hadar to all sleep, which allows the, the Ignavi to survive their, like, Ewok-like assault on the base as, like, a desperate attempt to stall for time while Bashir and Ezri do something. Uh, it all works out pretty well, actually, all things considered. All the plots like converge in one very specific way that allows everyone who is important to survive while a lot of people we have never heard of die. Yep. Shocking. So everyone meets back up again is uh, as they uh, so lock it and then the first. Well, no, and I, I think oh, I think we, the ahead. thing we need to do is the actual plot of the book, which yep. happens when uh, these plans are revealed. And Logan finally, like, he walks into the to the the room with the, you know, all the terminals and sees Bashir working. He's like, you have betrayed me. And Bashir's like, yes, yes, I did come here to do that. Well done. You're very smart. <laughs> uh, and reveals that um, although he could... Oh, I guess we should mention what Logan's plot technically was. Oh, right. To create a super virus thing. To create a soup, this is how inconsequential this bullshit is. It's to create like a super virus that he's going to launch uh, onto Romulus, which doesn't look like a super virus. It looks like a conventional Federation attack. Uh, so the Feder the Romulus will go to war with the Federation while the virus like slowly incubates across the population, and then when it becomes active, everyone is just going to die, which leaves the wreck of the galaxy for him and the other enhanced to reveal themselves as the true leaders of all. Uh, and so Bashir's like, no, you're insane. Uh, and uh, I've blown up your orbital station. And he's like, I couldn't change the missile path, but I could crash your station. The uh, thing, the thing that is interesting to me is we are literally like three years off from the entire geopolitics of this air section of the galaxy changing as Romulus fucking blows up. Uh, I think that happens in the books for, for a long while. Oh sure, but eventually, like the idea that Romulans are still the bad guys is like weird to me because I'm still kind of in like the post universe mindset where like the 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 inciting events of star trek 09 happened and romulus is dead and i'm like oh right romulus is still here i forgot i keep forgetting that we're actually yeah. still like pre-nemesis where the romulans were also taken down a notch as their entire senate was vaporized man the romulus the romulans just get completely destroyed for the inciting incidents of terrible fucking movies don't they yes yes they do oh yeah i don't know when in the book i assume romulus will no, because all the stuff happens... Alright, I'm working this out now. But uh, we've got a long way to go of books before the Romulan stuff will happen. Okay. 
It does happen. Like, I know Destiny, it does happen. It, it does happen, but like all the big Destiny stuff, that like okay. that is one of the big arcs of crossovers. That's all pre-09. Like a lot of this happens in these books are like from the mid 2000s before Star Trek was released. Oh, right. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so we've got a long way to go to that. But uh, as he's like oh, revealing the plans. The, the thing that I wanted to point out in that, though, is the decimation of the Romulans actually doesn't plunge the galaxy into war in the way that he predicted. Like, that's just not <laughs> how these things work. I feel like nope. the the secret and part of the reason that like the the show is not going to be in this quadrant of the galaxy when the new show comes out is that this quadrant of the galaxy is pretty settled. Like it's going to take like it would take a lot to rock the boat at this point. Yeah, and I don't think this one guy's bond plan is going to do it. Yep, like the Dominion War is a thing because it's the Dominion War. Like, yeah, and it's someone and it's this other force coming onto the galaxy as an inciting event. The end result of the Dominion War is only to bolster the like resolve of like the union of the races of the Alpha Meta quadrants. Yeah, and like the big events of the books we've got on coming are like a big Borg War. So it's it's all external things happening because. Like, the Klingons aren't going to suddenly go to war with everyone again. That would be dumb. I, I think that's kind of... I mean, that's what happens in Star Trek Online, is after I know Romulus that's what happens in Star Trek up. Online. Yes. <laughs> okay. I do know that. Yeah. But I'm not saying it's... It, but it's dumb, as an yep. idea. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, but anyway, the actual twist that happens in this is he reveals uh, that you have been used by Section 31 all along. Why did you think this was your idea? They let New Beijing happen so you would do this and they could, like, piggyback off your efforts in order to bolster the Federation's power. You have been controlled all along and here's the proof. That guy is the guy who I saw. That That's Officer Cole. That's yeah, Agent so Cole. Cole was, like, his, like, medical administrator on New Beijing, which caused Locken. Like, he's the one who recruited Locken as, like, the only survivors. And, oh, this is why he joined Section 31. And this is, every, like, this idea of creating an army of Jem'Hadar and augments and cloning and everything that he developed. Because he developed, he fixed cloning. I think I mentioned that. And was making clones of himself to try to achieve immortality. Uh was all part of Section 31's plan to, like, steal all this technology that he wouldn't have made for them otherwise. Yeah, they're like, you wouldn't have given this to them. You had to be, like, convinced that this was your idea and you were the, like, hero. Uh, but they're never going to, like, they are keeping tabs on you and they're never going to let you get away with this. You need, you. it is not too late. You can redeem yourself. You can join me and we can take on Section 31 together. And he goes... No, actually, I think I'll just die. Thanks. <laughs> well, what happens is that uh, he runs afoul of the Jem'Hadar, who have yep. now decided that they don't need any gods, and they will no gods, no kings, only Jem'Hadar. And, uh, <laughs> yep. and they like he basically is like, "I'm your god. You must listen to me." And they fucking shoot him until he vaporizes. <laughs> and they like keep shooting till like everything, yep. like the, the wall behind him is blackened with chars and ugh. And then, because they're all going through Ketracile White Withdrawal, because Ezri poisoned it, they all, like, just go into a rage frenzy and start murdering each other as everyone escapes. Yep. It's it's a it's a strange end. It's a strange and, ending to a book. And as they're escaping, Section 31 has showed up to clean up the pieces, which means killing everyone involved. Uh, and they would have shot down the runabout, except they had mysterious orders not to, because they're going to use Julian again in the future. Of course they are. Uh, yep. And so everyone escapes on the runabout as Section 31's like basically like walking through the forest with flamethrowers, leveling everything. Uh, uh, I didn't I didn't take it that they had mysterious orders not to. I took that more just Cole saying, he can go, he'll be Oh, sure. Again. But like basically they're like they would have destroyed him unless they had a specific reason not to. Yeah, and no. And Cole's like, no, I, I we are going to use like, him again. 
The thing I like about Section 31 is it never portrays them as, like, having these mysterious... Oh, no, they don't have, like, mysterious masters. It's, like, it's just... It's just coal. It's just, like, CIA agents that have been undercover too long. That they just go, like, native, but in, like, a CIA-ass way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's... Oh, God, they'd be so terrible if there was actually, like, a secret fucking Section 31 headquarters that was giving everyone orders. Do not make the Star Trek Patriots, please. (laughs) I know Second Thirty One are an enterprise. Maybe they'll do that. I don't know. That'd be weird. And so they uh, they escape. Section Thirty One gets all the technology, and Roe Laren is super distraught because all the Ingnavi are probably going to be murdered as a matter of course. Uh, before we get to the resolution, let's talk about the like cutbacks to DS Nine that happen in the course of that book that we all skipped. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> thousands of miles away. <laughs> um, there are two very small subplots, one of which is um, Kira just adjusting to being uh, attainted, I think is the, the word, uh, which means she's like not allowed to wear her earring. She's been completely excommunicated from the Bajoran faith, uh, which to her is like, I had too much faith for them. They couldn't handle all my faith, <laughs> which is she actually had, true. She had faith in the heart. Fuck off. Uh, and um, she like goes and has this like chat to uh one of the low level security officers who she's known for ages like as just a face who works under her but hasn't really talked to and then is like oh you're married to this girl who i also know is someone on the station but i never like connected you to because we're not close um and they just have a really good conversation and there's like a moment where she's like oh say hi to her for me and he goes i will but she knows he won't because she's one of the faithful so she hates her um, and I, I just really love any time where they let procedural interactions on the like on DS9 happen. These like quiet moments where you get to see what DS9 is as a place. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad they're taking like more opportunity to do that now they have books to work with. And then she's also contacted by like the Bajoran ambassador to the Federation, who is an old friend and basically like goes out of his way to like not quite but explicitly warn her that it that she's definitely being underwatch and that the Bajoran government might like remove her from the station if she doesn't like keep her nose clean from now on uh, in the most roundabout possible way. Yeah. There's like a whole scene where she's like, Oh, is he going to threaten me? Is he going to give me like, try to take away my power? Is he going to like, is he looking for all these things? But then by the end, it's very clear that he's like keeping up appearances while basically saying, be careful. Don't fuck up. Cause they're looking out for you. Yeah. And the thing I like about this is that it goes out of its way in both of those scenes to, like, show that, like, not every Bajoran is just like the the Kais, and they're all, like, there is a, uh, or the Vedics, that's the word I wanted, but uh, there's a whole level of Bajoran that are just like, yeah, you've been really solid to us for over a decade, like, we're gonna side with you in all of this bullshit. You're Kira Norris. Because it's not, like, it's not, like, the thing she did is hated by everyone. Like, it's hated by the faithful, but it's more that she undermined the faith in order to, like, she just, you know, she leaked information. And a lot of the Bajorans are, like, happy that this was leaked because it was important and crucial information about, like, things that they believed in. It was stuff that the the church was keeping hidden. Yeah. It's very, like, 101 whistleblower plotline. And it's being handled mostly fairly well. Uh, I'm excited to see what they do with it in later books. Uh, Meanwhile, uh on the bridge somewhere in the station uh vaughn and print 10 may have an interaction where she basically is like super rude to him and then when he has a conversation in private he's like why don't we just have dinner and she's like let me get this straight i will listen to your orders can, can, i will work with can, you 
Can you, uh, do you have the actual... I'll accept the reality that you're my CEO on the ship and the first officer of the station. I respect and honor your rank, and I'll follow your orders without question. I'll even carry on the pretense and mixed company that I can stomach being in the same room with you. But beyond that, you can go to hell, sir. And it storms <laughs> out. And Sarah's so like italicized. And then Vaughn says, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. And then uh, there's a scene where he's in Quark's bar just like drinking and being mopey. All right. And, and uh, Quark's like sidling up to him. He's like, I'm going to I'm going to get in good with the uh, with this, you know, the new uh, second officer. And he notices that she's like looking out over the promenade at Prin. And he's like, oh, you got your eye on that one. She's a little young and kind of standoffish. I don't think you got a shot. Uh, and he's like, Quark. Please stop talking and Quirk's all, you know, I could set you up with the hollow suite. You know, we've got plenty of uh, programs that'll keep you warm at night. And he's like, continuing, Quirk, like, just drop it. Just stop talking. And Quirk is going and then he's like, no, you don't understand. She's my daughter. And it's <laughs> like, well, I guess the next drink's on me then. <laughs> uh, I, no one responds to, like, sticking their foot in it as well as Quark does. Yeah, no. Because he always just, he's, like, he fucks up so much, but he always just immediately pivots. Just immediately. It's so yep. good. He's like, well, I guess that's just, uh, uh, there's more business to do. Business, business, business. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's really good. Uh so that's that's kind of Vaughn's plot. We know what happens there now, I guess. Uh, that There's no other resolution to that. So that'll just be waiting for another book, I guess. Uh, I assume it's just, uh, don't have big boss as your dad. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> imagine there's no, like, oh, actual... Oh, but sure. But when, in the next book, when, like, I think Vaughn, t- like, takes control of the Defiant as they go into the, uh, into the wormhole, I'm pretty sure she's going to be on that ship. Why wouldn't be she be, right? Like, she has yeah. to be for the plot. She has to be. <laughs> uh... So yeah, everyone's back and being debriefed and everything. Uh, Julian and uh, Esri, after all of this and all their problems where they almost actually got into a fight, are now super in love again because apparently this is just this doomed relationship is going to go forever. What I like about this is that while this apparently strengthens the relationship, if they had actually gone to Earth and done all those things with like Julian's family, they would be dead by now. This relationship would not be still here. Yep. Um. And then they have this moment where, uh, like, everyone is all upset and Ro is most upset because the Ngavi are, like, clearly all killed. And she's like, oh, maybe some, everyone's like, maybe someday we can go and send a, you know, a survey team to see what's left. And she's like, they'll all be dead by then. Don't worry about it. I'm just, I hate everyone. And uh, then there's this debriefing where Bashir meets Vaughn and it's on the, like, derelict Empaknor where like there's just enough atmosphere to keep the air in and it's slowly getting colder as they like drug it out to space so they could have like a conversation with nobody listening in because oh, Vaughn so is good. fucking cool. And then it re- like in that Vaughn talks about, he's like, I've got this bomber jacket that was the finest jacket Starfleet ever created. And I held on to it because it's the best thing to ever come out of the quartermaster's office. And the way he describes it, it's clearly like the bomber jacket that Kirk wears in like Wrath of Khan, the one with the big collar, like the burgundy one with like the white piping on the sides, which is one, the coolest Starfleet jacket. And also the idea that Vaughn is just like, this man who wears like a DS9 uniform all the time, but when he goes out, he picks up this jacket from like three eras ago is one of the coolest things. I love it so much. He is old enough that he has just lived through these different eras of Starfleet uniforms enough to just accrue a collection. Yep. And he likes this one and that's what he wears. So Bashir meets him and then Vaughn's like, uh, he just, he's basically like tipping his hand that, Oh, like everything's under control. We've got it taken care of section 31 probably won't bother you right now. And then he's like, what about the Ingavi? And then he points out to like 
the window and outside the window a ship decloaks and it is the giant hollow ship from Star Trek Insurrection that was used <laughs> to like transport the colonists under cover of night where they wouldn't think they were being moved uh, because that plot is basically that same as that plot where Wesley helps those like space Native Americans. Uh, oh, right. Yes, that is the same. <laughs> Fucking damn it. But in this time they use a big hollow or that time with uh, Worf's brother where they had to move everyone and make the holographic caves to make sure the people were moved to a different planet because Star Trek just uses the same plot six times. Anyway, <laughs> that hollow ship was confiscated by Vaughn after the events of Star Trek Insurrection because all of the Star Trek, uh, the events of that movie were secretly a Section 31 op that was pinned on the evil villain of that movie who was like an evil admiral or whatever. And Vaughn has been fighting a war against Section 31 for like a century and he will never stop. And he will use those talents that he has and the skills to help people like Bashir and like Rolaren and all the Ngavi are on that ship and they're going to be moved to a different planet where they, or they're going to be moved back to their original planet where they crash landed from and Rose off And he off turns to them. Bashir and he goes, find something to believe in and find it for yourself. <laughs> uh, because they can't, uh, they can't take it to section 31 right now, but someday they will fight the good fight for the whole good of the Federation. They just have to do it under cover of darkness and in secret, but they'll work Which together. is great. Because, like, at the beginning of the book, and Bashir's like, maybe he is Section 31, and then he comes up to him like, oh, could you have been, like, did you know, did you know what they were going to do? And he's like, yeah, because I'm not an idiot, but I'm not Section 31, I just have a brain. Yep. <laughs> you child. Yep. You can't beat Section 31 with one op. <laughs> and then he's like, also, check out my sweet hollow ship. Yeah. Good night, roll credits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's one actual more plot point that we forgot. What is it? Cassidy Yates. Oh, right. Right. The, the like, actual arc plot of this uh, season of DS9 books that will continue well over our past year, of, first year of doing this. Sends a call to Joseph Sisko on Earth. Joseph Sisko is very sad and tired and old now that he's lost his son, which is a bummer. But she's here to call about uh, what's going on and to just check up on Jake, who should have been at Earth like two weeks ago. <laughs> and, yeah, and there's the scene like, oh, how's Jake doing? And then Joseph's like, I thought he was with you. And then Cassie's like, well, I thought he was with you. Uh, and then the plot of Home Alone happens, except he's in a wormhole. Except uh, uh, Joseph's like, and she's like, oh, I hope Joseph's not going to have a heart attack with me on this call, uh, which is ludicrous. And uh, no, every, now they know Jake Sisko's gone, but he's been gone for like weeks now and no one's actually paid much attention. But he, whatever, he's not in linear time. He'll be fine. The best part is like, they don't know where he is, but it's clear that they're like, he probably went off to the wormhole. Yeah. They're like, oh, he did something. He did something he must not want us to know about, which basically is like one thing. Yeah, like, there's no worry that he could have been, like, killed in some crash or something. They're like, oh, he's gone to the wormhole. It's like, okay, well, we'll deal with that next book, I guess. God damn it, no. Jake. No, he's good. Jake Sisko's going to be in that wormhole for, like, five books. Are you kidding me? Oh, I bet it's not going to be till uh, that one that's called Unity where he comes out. Because I know that's, like, the... There's, like, four S.D. Perry books, which I'm going to assume are the, the, like, the core of this arc. We've had two of them, uh... And those will be the ones where Jake shows up, is my guess. Great. Good. So that is Star Trek Deep Space Nine Section 31 Abyss. Five. Uh, as you said, it's kind of a bad book. It, it's like, it's basically like another Bashir James Bond holodeck episode, but like as a book that's deathly serious and not a fun time. And I don't know why oh. you make that. I, but like, yeah, like clearly they wanted to make all these Section 31 books. 
Uh, which I really like. What the fuck is Section Thirty One interacting with Picard like? I, I we're gonna find out someday. <laughs> Apparently so, because my word. One one of the things I actually like about like Section Thirty One, looking at this, is the way in which the mere existence of Section Thirty One like actually ends up poisoning everything the Federation does, even when they're not involved. Yeah, like the idea that the Federation could be capable of this and no one's going to know just colors everything with like a sinister intent. It basically turns the very like the Gene Roddenberry utopian ideal into even if it's still that sometimes it's still like done by the arm of like a like a state power that could be fascistic and the fact that it has that potential automatically makes it suspect and like imperialist in a way that it wasn't even before like mm-hmm. it takes the rose colored glasses off of everything star trek to just see it what it baldly is which is a bunch of like humans and a couple aliens going around colonizing the galaxy yeah it's a, it's uh it's a depressing time so, I don't know when Section 31 will come back. I assume they will figure into other plots before the, like, next Section 31 books that happen decades later. Yeah, probably. Uh, Agent Cole. Because every Section 31 thing has to end with, like, they're still watching you, Bashir. They'll be back one day. <laughs> yep. So, that's it. Uh, that let's it. do questions real fast before we get out of here. We do. We have one question. All right. We have one question today uh, from at Siberian uh, at Siberian Pine. Um, question is, uh, when I bought yeah. Question is, when I binged all of modern Star Trek as an undergrad, I never got to Enterprise before life got in the way. Now that I am an adult with limited free time and lots I could be watching, do you think it's worth it? If not, the whole thing. Are there any standout Enterprise episodes to you guys? So, I. Standard episodes is really hard for me because like that's not how I watch TV. I'm one of those people who, even if I've decided that I'm going to watch all of a show, even if I hate large swaths of it, I will never skip anything. Uh, just to I'm either I in or I'm out. Yeah, like that's that's just how it's gonna be. Like if I stop, if I if I'm gonna skip an episode, if I actually feel like I should skip this episode, I will drop the entire series. I just won't keep going because if I feel that way, I should do something else with my time. That yep. said, I am one of the biggest Star Trek Enterprise defenders I know. I think it's a great show. Uh, if you've watched all the other Star Trek, you will be primed for it because the thing that Enterprise does that like basically necessitates a high buy-in, which is probably why it wasn't particularly popular, is you have to care a lot about minute Star Trek bullshit, which is great for us because we run a podcast <laughs> about minute Star Trek bullshit. But I get that your average person doesn't actually care that, oh, here's this weird bit about like how the Klingons got their foreheads or why the foreheads were off like different during the original series. Or here's a bit about like augments when Kondoni and Soong, like way back when, when that was still like a thing people were deathly scared of. Or here's how Earth and Vulcan like formed into a more like you like more. Uh, what, what's what I want? Like a, a, like agreement as equals over like the weird paternalism that the Vulcans would show to Earth as like this race that just pulled itself out of a third world war. Uh, yeah. All that stuff is in Enterprise and is explored really well. And that's the thing that it does great. Um, I think it's a really cool show. I get that it's not for everyone, but I think it's definitely worth your time. It's also only like four seasons, you know, like it's fine. Uh I, I would say I'm watching it. Oh, oh you, go ahead. Yeah. I would say uh if like if you find season three a little trying, uh know that season four is full of like really great episodes and just power through because season three is like one big long arc and it clearly shouldn't be it should be like maybe like sixteen episodes and not like twenty four. But Oh, it's uh, a whole twenty four episodes of one mm 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 
yeah. It's it it goes too far, but it's 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 interesting enough, and it has a lot of wrinkles, and it's 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 cool. It's worth doing. Uh, and but season four is like basically the ideal, which like every episode or two is like a one two part. It's like basically like mini Star Trek movies at that point, and it's great. It's amazing. Season four I've of Enterprise only... really found its footing in a way that I find remarkable. I've only seen um, most of season one. I've almost finished with it, but I am enjoying the show a lot. I'm ca- continuing through. Uh, need to pick up the pace because of this show but uh, it's good I'm enjoying it a lot it's a good yep. show if you have questions you can send them to podcast at adorbmapping.com just put you know so, you know what you I'd like you to put second officer slog in there but if you don't we're gonna read them we don't get that much email let's be real uh, yeah. next month our episodes as we said before are the TNG episodes Haven from uh, season one episode 11 and also second chances which is TNG season six episode 24 uh, they are Troy Riker episodes because we were reading Anzadi by Peter David, which is one of the biggest, uh, quote unquote, like the one of the most known TNG books. Uh, it'll be all Riker try. We've been recording for an hour and <laughs> forty minutes. Uh, we'll be all Troy Riker all the time. If you are here for Troy Wharf, stay tuned for like two years from now when we read Anzadi two, which is about that stuff. I am always here for a, a Troy Wharf. Fuck yeah, no. TNG movies. They are not yeah, no. canon. I mean, they are canon because Worf actually went and had like a really great relationship outside of like, look, if you if you get Troy Wharf, you don't get Worf Jadzia. And like, I'll take that. Mm. Now, Worf Jadzia is much better than Troy Wharf, but also Troy Wharf is so good. <laughs> but, but like, can you imagine if we got Troy Wharf, but only in the movies? Like, fuck that. I don't want any of that. Yeah, but we also have to sit through like the scenes where she's like, Riker has Riker has shaved and they're like making out and they're all old and it's hell. Yep. Instead we get Picard calling Worf a coward to his face. <laughs> We're not gonna talk about it. We're out of here. Please enjoy Star Trek. We'll be back next month with more Star Trek. That's all. Well you any other man, I would kill you where you stand. <laughs> Shadows protecting his fellows from sun up to the moon on his back. Sent the villains to Hades, a hit with the ladies, a stallion in the sack. You can't get your laugh back when right follows left jack. The more you see, the less you know. When others would leak it, his service is secret. Please, God, when it's your time to go. Country safe and sound with villains six feet underground And no one knows cause no one's found Any trace of a man for our seasons Loves him and leaves him alone So alone And you and I wouldn't have a clue Who's doing what, why, when and who Up the creek with no canoe Watch out for the man for our seasons Loves him and leaves him alone So alone Saving Norfolk broads, commoners and landed gentry. His word.